and I'm Stephanie. Oh man. <laughs> Today, it, I don't know what happened to the weekend because it's Sunday now and it feels like it should st- still be Saturday. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where the yeah. weekend went and I don't appreciate it. <laughs> Same. My ankle and my feet are just absolute murder. I have been using a foot massager to try to make it to where I can at least walk. Oh. So that's fun. <laughs> you might need like a foot soak or something too. Yeah, working from 4.30 in the afternoon to 2 in the morning is Yikes. fun. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah, definitely. I don't want to mention the place where you work specifically, but they need to get their shit together. <laughs> Oh, they're they're working on it. We have a new um, general manager who came and he's the one that hired me and he's already made big changes in this place. And oh, that's good. It's just there the the cooks can't seem to keep up with high numbers of customers and orders. Yeah. So even when we're getting sat, they're Ticket times, which is like how long it takes for them to make the food once we put in the order, are ridiculous. I had a party of seven last night that waited over a hundred minutes oh for their food. Gosh, over a hundred minutes. Forty of those minutes was waiting on an appetizer. Wow, they need more people. Yeah, in the kitchen. <laughs> I didn't think I was gonna get a tip from them, and I think they thought I was bullshitting them when I was like, "I'm sorry, the cooks just can't keep up." I'm trying every time I mention something, they yell at me for asking. I'm trying to get your food, guys. And they seemed like pissed off at me. And then they heard a server talking to a table in a zone right next to him, like right behind them. And they heard her saying how she's been trying to help force the food out and how bad it was back there. And after that, they were like super nice to me. So I thanked her for thank you for telling your table that loud enough to where my table heard. So they realized I wasn't just blowing smoke up their ass and it wasn't me. Yeah. Because in the end, you know, he even, it's just, it was a disaster. One of their meals got completely comped. The rest of their ticket was 40% off. They were happy in the end. They still tipped me $11, which was shocking. I didn't think I was going <laughs> to see anything. Yeah. So I'm just grateful. And yeah, the cooks need to get their shit together. Like the, get the prep work done ahead of time, I think. Yeah. The hosts get mad at us that they're on a wait list, that we can't take seat, seating people. And I, I ended up talking to them last night. I said, look, I could take more seats. I don't care if you sit more people. I could take more customers. The problem is the cooks can't handle it. And when I put in that order, the people that you're seating are going to wait over 40 minutes for their food. They're not going to be happy. They're like, we're on a wait list already for over an hour. I said, I understand that. I said, just make sure that when you pull them off that wait list and you're seating them, please tell them, hey, by the way, we're taking you off this, but the the kitchen is behind. So you're looking at a long wait time to receive your food. Get your orders in right away, but it's going to be a while. Let them know because once you seat them, they're thinking, oh, we've already been waiting for a while. Why am I waiting on this food? What's wrong with you? And they're yelling at me like, please, just we need to work together, guys, because I'm getting yelled at. I'm going after the cooks. The cooks are getting mad. This is just crazy. Yeah. They're like, okay. I'm like, look, I could take more tables. 
I'd like to take more tables if the cook can handle it. Like, all right, who else do we need to get back there to help you with the prep work, guys? Like, moving along. That. It's a disaster. (laughs) That sounds like it. And I am glad I don't work in the restaurant business. (laughs) I love to cook. But that's at home, and I'm only making one thing. I don't have to make 15, 20, you know, however many different dishes it is. My first table of the night was great. I got over $30 in a tip from oh, them. Wow. They were wonderful people. It was like a table of eight. They were having a birthday. At first, I thought they were going to be terrible because it was like, okay, older, middle to high, higher class white people. Yeah. And the one guy was already driving me nuts. Like, I take his appetizer order and he's like, how long is that going to be? And I've still got other orders to take at the table. Like, it'll hopefully be out shortly after I put it in. And I take the other tables and he's like, so it's not going to be long on that, right? I'm like, going going to go put the order in right now, sir. And then, like, it wasn't even taking that long because it was the first table of the night. The beginning of the night started out great. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm going to, you know, and he kept saying, how much longer on that? I'm like. I'm checking on it for you, sir. Like, he wanted that food right meow, and he did not want to wait. Now, so I thought, oh great, this is going to be terrible, but um, it wasn't. They ended up being nice. They gave me a cupcake, nice, which they insisted on it. And I'm not a sweets person. That was the best stinging cupcake I have had in my life. (laughs) Oh my gosh! Like I would club somebody over this cupcake. (laughs) I demolished it and i was like i need to know where on earth they got this sam's club apparently really apparently from their sam's club bakery like straight off the case i was like i need to know and they're like sam's club i was like that is insane i thought Publix had great bakery that like blew anything i've ever had out of the water i was like well apparently i am a cupcake person and I didn't know that. I was just having all the wrong cupcakes. That's funny. Our our Walmart bakery here, I really like. Because it's their cupcakes and stuff have the real sugary frosting, which is my favorite. Like mm-hmm. cavity on impact with your mouth. Mm-hmm. I love that kind of frosting. But their donuts, too, are some of the best around. And it's ridiculous. You know, speaking of restaurants, though, and people putting orders in, I feel bad for any waitress that has my father-in-law. Oh, yeah. (laughs) This is a man that grew up poor, but when he sits down at a restaurant and he's getting ready for someone to serve him, it's like he turns into an emperor. And it's like, oh, no, everything must be correct. And even he'll tell the waitress the wrong thing. And then so she'll bring the order and he'll be like, I didn't order this. And then all of us then are instantly on him. It's like, so the whole table, all of us just turn against him. And then it's like, knock it off. Oh, good. We're all telling you, you said the wrong thing. So deal with it or order a whole nother meal. Like, don't be, don't be a jerk. (laughs) So he hates, he hates going to restaurants with us. Because when he pulls that shit with waitresses, we're like, no, no, no. (laughs) You're like, absolutely not. You knock it off. She's just doing her job. You don't to turn into a dick. <laughs> we say it in front of the waitresses, too, so they know. We're like, no, don't listen to him. Oh, good. so we love people that are like that. We love people that call out their family. I had one table. 
That was so nice because I, I went to the store and um, I started buying, like, I tried uh, Hershey Kisses one night. I was just worried it was going to melt in my pocket the whole night. So I'm doing, um, trying to think of what they're called, those little sweet sour candies that are individually wrapped. I'm trying to remember what they're called. Like but um, No, no. But I, I put them, I put a couple down on the table and they're like, ooh, do you guys always do this? Is this like always a thing? I was like, no, I went to the store. I bought them for my table specifically. I just, you know, hand it out at the end of the meal. They're like, oh, that's nice because we've been in here before and we definitely didn't get these. So <laughs> I was wondering if maybe I had missed out. <laughs> like, like, nope. But it's just a me thing. And they're like, oh, okay, well, thank you. <laughs> like, you're very welcome. That's funny. It made me laugh so hard. I was like, no, no, it's definitely a me thing. <laughs> You're not missing out on an extra piece of candy, sir. <laughs> I want this penny candy every time. My expectations are now set so high. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's funny. All right, so what do you have for me this week? Well, what I have for you today is the case that inspired the beginning of Jeepers Creepers. 46-year-old Dennis Depew was a property assessor and his 48-year-old estranged wife, Marilyn, was a Coldwater High School guidance counselor. They had been married for several years and raised three children. Nevertheless, their marriage was extremely tense. After he became withdrawn from the marriage, he accused her of turning their children against them. Marilyn often told friends that she was no longer happy and wanted a divorce. In 1989, after 18 years of marriage, Marilyn filed for divorce. She had told her attorney that Dennis had been trying to ruin her life and would not let her make decisions on her own. He had tried to keep the marriage together. However, the divorce was finalized in December 1989. He was granted bi-weekly visitation rights, but their children were often opposed to spend time with him. He was also given access to the guest house, which he used as an office. Although it was believed he used that as an excuse to maintain control over his family. Oh, so a real great guy, sounds like. Your kids yeah. don't want to see you <laughs> and still tries to control it. Yeah, it's awesome. Mm-hmm, exactly. Marilyn later changed the locks on the doors, yet he still managed to find a way to enter the home. Oh. So... Lovely. Yes. Not creepy at all. On East, right. On Easter Sunday, April 15, 1990, Dennis arrived at their home to pick up two of their children. Their youngest daughter, Julie, had already refused to go with him. When he went inside, their son, Scott, was hesitant to go. When Marilyn tried to talk to Dennis, he became angry and started yelling at her. He then grabbed her and pushed her down the stairs. Oh, at the bottom, he continued to beat her even after their children pleaded with him to stop. Wow. Yeah. Their oldest daughter, Jennifer, ran to the neighbor's house to call the police. Dennis then carried a seriously injured Marilyn back up the stairs. He told their children that he was taking her to the hospital. They, however, never arrived at the hospital. Wow. An immediate and widespread search began for them right after. Later that afternoon, Ray and Marie Thornton were going on a Sunday drive on Snow Perry Road near Coldwater when a speeding van passed them. They observed that its license plate began with GZ, 
but not did not pay much attention until a few minutes later. As they passed an abandoned school, Marie saw the driver carrying a bloody sheet behind it. Minutes later, the van pulled up behind them and rode their bumper for several miles. Finally, Ray turned off the highway. They discerned the van pulled off to the side of the road. They turned around and noticed the driver changing the license plate. And they also saw blood on the passenger side door. Wow. Mm-hmm. They decided to return to the school where they found the bloody sheet in an animal hole. After they contacted the police, they learned that the man they had seen was Dennis. So that's where basically the beginning of Jeepers Creepers with the truck riding their bumper, carrying a body, throwing it in a hole. Oh, yeah. That movie effed me up. Something (laughs) creepy and even creepier now that that part was based on what somebody saw in Michigan. Yeah, it was one of my favorites. Like, I love Jeepers Creepers. I didn't realize that it was, yeah. It still makes me sad my sister hasn't seen that movie. I made a reference and she did not get it. Because we passed by a barn, and I was like, that looks like from Jeepers Creepers 2. <laughs> and she did not understand. So I was like, well, okay then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tire tracks at the school belonged to Dennis's van, and the blood on the sheet was Marilyn's. Based on the evidence, it appeared that he had killed her. However, it wasn't until the next day that this was confirmed. Highway workers discovered her body near a deserted road. She had been shot once in the back of the head. A few days later, Dennis sent several bizarre, rambling letters to his friends and family. In them, he tried to justify Marilyn's death. Altogether, he sent a total of 17 postmarked in Virginia, Iowa, and Oklahoma. Wow. Which is, like, insane to me. It just seems extra weird that he must have killed her if she was on the side of the highway and then drove into some abandoned place to leave a bloody sheet. Like, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make, like, none of it does. No. Especially this next part. It's so, like, weird. At 8.30 p.m. on the night that Unsolved Mysteries aired a special on the case, a woman named Mary, quote-unquote, I guess she's unnamed, (laughs) arrived at her home in Dallas, Texas. When she came inside, her boyfriend, Hank Queen, told her that he had to leave soon because his mother was sick. He asked her to make him some sandwiches for the trip, and she observed that he was packing several items into his suitcase. And he also seemed to try to distract her from whatever was going on on TV. Hmm. He left a few minutes later in his van. Later that night, Mary had learned that Hank was actually Dennis. No way. And that he had just been featured on the episode. She believes that he was watching it, which is what was caused him to leave. Yeah. A friend of hers called the telecenter and gave them the Texas license plate number for his van. Louisiana state troopers soon spotted Dennis's van and they attempted to pull him over. He led them into Mississippi on a 15 mile high speed chase and broke through two police barricades. Eventually, deputies fired at his back tires and caused him to stop. And after firing three shots at the police, he turned the gun on himself and committed suicide. Wow. So dude's a massive coward. And psychotic. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to off yourself, at least do it right after you off your wife. I don't know. Just kill Mm -hmm. her and then run and then just kill yourself later because you're 
surrounded. Caught. Like, but wow. Yeah, it's something else. Yeah, and they're poor kids. Yeah, so to witness it happen, and then him saying he's going to take her to the hospital, and then he just murders her and then leaves. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Like, this whole thing just sat weird on my stomach. Like, I was like, why? This doesn't... Yeah, so messed up. Like, that not wanting to give up control. Even in his... It's like he didn't want to be sentenced. He wanted to die Mm -hmm. his way. And screw everybody else. Yep. What a dick. (laughs) Dick cheese (laughs) and what do you have i have the story of gwendolyn graham and kathy wood and i didn't know too much about this i don't even remember how i came upon the story i just remember seeing it and i was like nope that's that's what i have to do next and then i watched uh oh what show there was a show that had an episode on them and I was riveted. I think it was um, Snapped, maybe? I know they did an episode on them. I ended up finding it on YouTube, so I couldn't figure out like exactly what show it was. But I wanted to watch it. <laughs> so I just Googled it and then found it on YouTube. So there's an option if anyone's interested. Gwendolyn Gale Graham. And this is not to be confused. There's a politician named Gwen Graham that I found on the Wikipedia. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's a bad name coincidence. But so it's specified. Gwendolyn Gale Graham was born August 6, 1963. Graham was from Texas. And at 22, she moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan around 1986. Upon her move, Graham got into a relationship with Kathy May Wood who was born in Washington State in, on March 7th, 1962. Graham and Wood met at the Alpine Manor Nursing Home in Walker, Michigan, which is a suburb of Grand Rapids, where Graham was a nurse's aide and Wood was her supervisor. And at the time, Wood was still married to her husband, Ken. So she had an affair with a woman who she also I mean... supervised. <laughs> Sounds like a Maury episode. Yeah. Questionable. Or a Jerry episode. Yeah. Um, They quickly became friends and lovers. The Wikipedia article on Graham claimed they practiced sexual asphyxia to achieve better orgasm. I mean, everybody's got their kink. Just just don't (laughs) understand why that needed to be on the Wikipedia for it. It was. uh, (laughs) Yeah. I prefer to breathe, but you do, you ladies. <laughs> uh, however, Graham began to talk about committing murder as a sexual game. And this is where it gets fucked up. Uh, of course. Because they're in a nursing home is where they work. So you can imagine where this is going. Yeah. Uh, January 18th, 1987, with Wood acting as lookout. Graham entered the room of a female patient who had Alzheimer's disease and smothered her with a washcloth. 60-year-old Marguerite Chambers became the pair's first victim. The death appeared to be natural, so an autopsy was never performed. I I would guess that would be common for an older person in a nursing home where it may seem like a heart attack or something, but 
with Alzheimer's still at 60, you'd think you'd want to look into it. At I least. just think there should always be an autopsy no matter what. I mean, I during the the show on it, one of the guys talked about like the number of usual deaths and the kind of the time span, however many deaths they would average a year didn't increase during that time. So I think that's why there weren't really suspicions about it because it's nursing home, a lot of people with, you know, diseases and dying of heart attacks and whatnot. And maybe they just thought that it didn't seem outside of the ordinary. So they didn't look into it more. But Wood said Graham did it to help relieve stress. So over the next few months, four more Alpine Manor patients were murdered. <laughs> and they went ham. How does... And how does that not raise suspicion? Like, you would think after... Yeah. What? So they went ham on the female patients for some reason. Like, every one of these that they're saying it was a murder were all females. Um, aging from 60 to 90s. So, Mommy issues. <laughs> probably. 95-year-old Myrtle Luce became the next victim a month later when she was found dead of an apparent heart attack. Less than a week later, on February 16th, May Mason, age 79, was found dead by another nurse's aide. Her death was determined to be cardiac arrest, and she also had Alzheimer's. However, two hours prior, she was checked on by a nurse, and she was found to be okay. So sometime in that two-hour time period, they were thinking that she died of cardiac arrest. According to hospital records, over the next two weeks, two more patients... Belle Burkhard and Edith Cook were found deceased in their rooms. One male patient said he was attacked, but no one took that seriously due to the patient's mental status because he had dementia and other issues. And it does seem like they stuck to females. So they're, they didn't include that in the case against them because it didn't fit. And also the dementia, you don't really know for sure. So they, they couldn't really go for that one. So like I said, the victims whose ages ranged from 65 to 97 were incapacitated and suffered from Alzheimer's disease. This is, this is the part where it really got weird. Graham and Wood made the selection of victims into a game, choosing victims whose initials collectively spelled murder. But when that became difficult and the the documentary kind of alluded to the fact that they struggled or something happened where they weren't actually killed. They began counting each murder as a day in the phrase, I will love you forever and a day. The, the whole thing. <laughs> Weird. A poem by Wood to Graham and introduced in the trial concluded, you will be mine forever and five days. Wood also testified that Graham took souvenirs from the victims, keeping them to relive the deaths. However, no such souvenirs were ever discovered by police. Wood also portrayed Graham as being sexually, physically, and emotionally dominant in their relationship. It said Graham took souvenirs from the victims, like I'd mentioned, and both women openly talked about smothering six victims to their co-workers, with Graham even showing off her souvenirs, but no one believed them. And then they said they were joking about it. 
The couple broke up when Wood refused to actively kill a patient to prove her love to Graham, and Graham began dating another female nursing aide who also worked at Alpine Manor. Wood transferred to another shift, and Graham claimed in later interviews that Wood was abusive. Graham then moved back to Texas with the woman um, she had a relationship with to escape Wood, and began to work in a hospital taking care of infants. Oh, no. Because that's not a horrifying thought. And a murder investigation didn't actually begin until 1988, after Wood's ex-husband, Ken, who she told about the murders, went to the police. So, good job, dude. (laughs) Good job, Ken. When somebody tells you about murder, maybe tell the police. (laughs) Yeah. I'd be like, oh, they're joking. Because how many times... Have we heard a story, even the Royal Oak Sniper, where the wife will come forward later and be like, oh, yeah, he said something. Maybe say something earlier, because most sane people don't joke about murders they've committed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we might we might say that we want to punch somebody in the throat, but there's nobody that I know that is going to say, hey, I, I killed that person that died. That, that doesn't... <laughs> That doesn't happen. So her ex-husband told the police in October 1988, which led them to investigate further. The first victim was exhumed November 30th, 1988, almost a year after her burial. The coffin was taken to Kent County Morgue for examination. Eight possible victims were identified, but police ended up pursuing five. And a big problem with those exhumations is they still found no proof because of how long the bodies were in the ground, one, and two, it's hard to tell asphyxiation when there's no physical evidence of it. Um, Right. Because there might be some way to tell right away if somebody was choked, so you'd have the evidence of something across the throat or, you know, something within being damaged, but washcloths over the mouth And with how long they had been buried already. And a lot of them had been cremated. So it was really... They they didn't have any physical evidence. Co-workers said they liked to stir up trouble. And a lot of that was instigated by Kathy. And when police looked into Graham, they found that she had a three-year-old warrant for writing bad checks. So that was really enough for them to go to Texas and question her there. And enough evidence was found to arrest Wood and Graham. December 1988, Graham was arrested in her hometown of Tyler, Texas. However, she maintained their claims were made as a joke to scare their co-workers. Real funny, you guys. <laughs> Murder. I murdered someone. Ha ha ha. No. <laughs> right. No one finds it funny. Um, <laughs> during the trial, Wood plea bargained her way to a reduced sentence claiming it was Graham who planned and carried out the killings, where she served as a lookout or distracted supervisors. Graham maintained her innocence and said that the murders were part of a mind game by Wood. She claimed to be in other parts of the building and that Wood would say anything to get what she wanted. Even with the lack of physical evidence, the testimony of Kathy Wood and the testimony of Graham's girlfriend was enough to sway the jury when she testified that Graham confessed to killing five women. 
And in the snapped, I think it was Killer Couples episode, it said that Graham suffers from borderline personality disorder and has psychopathic features, meaning she is chronically unstable in her moods and interpersonal relationships. However, it also said that Wood was diagnosed with pathological personality with narcissistic behavior. So together, oh, <laughs> they're, no. they're just this winning combination of fucked upery with right everything, like things that had happened to them as they grew up, their relationships with family members, and their psychological issues essentially made them this horrible team. <laughs> right. On September 20th, 1989... Graham was found guilty of five counts of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder, and the court gave her six life sentences. She resides in the Huron Valley Complex for Female Offenders in Ypsilanti. (laughs) Everything's in Ypsilanti. I don't want to go there ever. I'm sorry. Anyone from (laughs) Ypsilanti. (laughs) No, I kind of just want to go. (laughs) <laughs> now you just want to go there. <laughs> now I kind of do. Now it's like, okay, what's the big deal about Ypsilanti? What's there? Every episode we've done almost has had some kind of connection to Ypsilanti. And I just... <laughs> it's it's like, what makes Ypsilanti so special? What's there? Well, all the murderers are there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like some murder Bermuda Triangle. I don't know. <laughs> It's like this black hole of just, send everyone here. (laughs) Wood was charged with one count of second-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit second-degree murder. She was sentenced to 20 years on each count and was incarcerated in the minimum security federal correctional institution in Tallahassee, Florida. Unfortunately, she was released January 16th, 2020 on parole and is expected to live with relatives in South Carolina. Um, excuse me? <laughs> yeah, she's out. <laughs> and not that far from me? Excuse me? Yeah. I mean, the, this whole story is, is just nuts. So as Lowell Caulfield documents in his nonfiction book, Forever and Five Days, I tried reading it, but it, it was like 114 chapters, and I did. I didn't want to. It was a lot. (laughs) It was too long. Friends, co-workers, family members, and others who knew Graham and Wood told an entirely different story than the one Wood spun as the key witness in Graham's trial. They described Wood as both a coercive and seductive pathological liar who delighted in wreaking havoc in the lives of others. The book presents evidence that Wood planned the first murder after she found Graham with another woman and that she involved Graham as an insurance policy to keep her from ever leaving her. The documentary did talk about how Graham could be manipulated, and I'll kind of get into that more here. When Graham left her anyway, after this series of alleged killings, Wood was willing to put herself in legal jeopardy by disclosing to police to exact her revenge. The book portrays Wood as a psychopathic criminal mastermind who manipulated the prosecutor and the jury to punish Graham. Psychological testing also revealed Graham could be easily manipulated, 
suffered from borderline personality disorder, and lacked the sophistication to plan the series of killings, let alone adequately defend herself in trial. I can't speak right there. That went a little off. So Wood, the book also reveals, later told inmates two other versions of events. One, she had made the entire story up to put Graham away for life for leaving her for another woman. Or two, she had done all the killing, but framed Graham also for revenge. Several of the families sued the owners of Alpine Manor for hiring dangerous and unbalanced employees. Alpine Manor has since gone out of business, but the building now houses a nursing home called Sanctuary at St. Mary's. The Gramwood case was the basis of the 1992 true crime novel that I mentioned, Forever in Five Days, by Lowell Caulfield, and were featured in two episodes of the TV series, The Serial Killers, in which they were interviewed about their relationship and crimes. And you can also see more about them on the TV show uh, Snapped Killer Couples, or just look up their names on YouTube. (laughs) And you can see some shows about them. So, hmm. Wow. Did it say, did they say anything about whether or not Graham had done anything to any of the babies? Nope. They didn't, they didn't get into that at all. So I'm thinking the babies were fine, which makes me think more that it was wood. Either that or mommy issues, like I'm saying. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Going after older women. And uh, the more I watched and the more I read, it really seems like Wood got away with murder. Because she just seemed like this super manipulative, would do anything to get what she wanted. Like one of them super narcissistic, <laughs> like the, like they mentioned that she was diagnosed with. And I don't know. Because with those two different scenarios where either she made it up to get revenge or she did it, I can't imagine wanting revenge on someone so much that you're willing to risk prison time. Right. Yeah, so as soon as I started reading about them, I was like, nope, I gotta do this one. This is messed up. This is so crazy. Right. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And the and the fact that they were convicted when there was literally zero physical evidence to show that they did murder those women. Like you don't, you don't know which way to go with that. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. But I think what what really did it cuz Wood could basically say whatever she wanted, but I think it was the current girlfriend saying that she told me she did these things. That was really enough for the jury to say, okay. Her current girlfriend's even saying that she admitted it. Because if she had never said anything like that to her current girlfriend, I don't think anything would have been able to be done, really. Right. Because they would only have the word of one woman who was also saying that like, she was involved and it was, it was all Graham that did it. So It's just crazy to me. The whole thing. It's just crazy. <laughs> and what what gets me too is that all these movies that we loved are like inspired on events that are coming from Michigan. 
Joyride, Jeepers Creepers. What next, man? <laughs> Don't tell me Hannibal Lecter was a Michigan a U of M professor. They were they were just gonna have some uh I don't know, like the tales. Isn't there like there's a Detroit Devil myth or like story? And then there was one up here <laughs> my my boss at the time used to joke about all the time, which was Dogman. Oh, really? Yeah. I know that they have those in Jersey. That's the Jersey Devil, but I didn't know anything about Michigan. Yeah, I think I remember reading somewhere about there being one in Detroit. We may have to look into these myths around Halloween. I guess so. Then there, what was it? The Spalding Lights? I think it was another one. Weird stuff. Very. So. We gotta do our hell yeah, or what's something good? Um, we need to perp back up from those. <laughs> oh goodness. I have today off work. That is my that is my good <laughs> happiness of the day. I get to at least have that bit of relaxation, even though I'm visibly tired. And you can see I'm out of it. I am here and I don't have to go in tonight. <laughs> That's good news. What do you have? Mine I I've been trying to keep up with the Olympics and some cool mm -hmm. stories coming out of that. Seeing, oh, uh, his name, Caleb Dressel, the swimmer, mm -hmm. like getting teary eyed, seeing his family as like the national anthem plays. And that, that hit me a little bit too. What, what got me was uh, when the gymnast from USA who won the gold medal after Simone Biles dropped out, and Simone was um, cheering her up. And then there was videos of when the girl's family found out that she had just won the gold for all around gymnastics. Oh. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like this Asian girl, another, another female of color winning gymnastics gold, like all these women in a row. And otherwise, you know, because Simone backed out. And so when she won, Simone even did on Instagram of them hanging out together. And she's like, here's the queen and hyping her up. That's awesome. And I was like, eh. <laughs> I, I don't know if you saw the New Zealand women's team that won rugby. They did the, the haka at the mm -mm. end. And there's something about watching <laughs> people doing that that like hits me in the feels. And I don't know what it is. I think it's like they put all their emotion into that. When you yeah. see a group of people doing the haka and it's like, whoa, it hits hard. Did you see um, what happened, what Pink decided to do after the volleyball team got in trouble for not wearing bathing suits? Yeah, she paid their fine, right? She she was like, oh, they're going to be mad at you for not wearing bathing suits, like bikinis or whatever it was that they... Yeah. They didn't wear I bikini bottoms bathing. or something like yeah. that. Yeah. They had shorts something on, like that. which were still tight and the men's teams can wear shorts yeah just like the men's runners wear shorts but the women's wear bathing suits yeah it's bullshit it's a whole it's a whole sexist thing and they wanted to wear shorts and they got fined for it so pink said hey look i'm gonna cover your fines keep doing you yeah stick it to them that was like a hell yeah yeah way to go pink well my my last thing there's this female hurdler Named Melissa Gonzalez. Also happens to be married to Detroit quarterback. 
David Blau, and they're at training camp right now. So he couldn't be there, obviously. So there's a video from the training camp. They're set up in their theater or whatever, and there's a group of them watching her make it to the semifinals. And I think she runs that tomorrow, which is going to be done by the time this goes out, but August 2nd. She runs for the semifinal, and he's watching it in the front row, cheering her on. (laughs) And I get so excited. (laughs) It's like, that's awesome. It's like they're supporting his wife and literally, like, cheering for her. And you can tell he's anxious for her, but yeah. So she made it to the semifinals. So I'm going to have to watch. They just need to add her to the team as a running back or (laughs) something. Come on, throw her the ball. She'll get it to the end quicker than your guys will. Promise that. I was trying to to find her information and a little bit more about them. Um, apparently, they went to the same high school, and but she's a dual citizen, so she's actually running for Columbia. Mm. I was surprised, and I was like, "No, dang it! If she's good, we need her for the U.S. <laughs> we need, we need the best." Yeah, like I know you can run for Columbia, but come on. <laughs> Do you have to? Come on. Yeah, (laughs) man. So, yeah, good for her. I hope she does well. And it was just really nice to see, um, even though he was at training camp, a bunch of them still, you know, cheering her on. And she's supposed to run again, uh, like I said, August 2nd, but at like 7.55 a.m. our time, like which is Eastern. Oh, wow. So the the news article, it was funny because it said something about not being surprised if uh, players were late to training camp that day. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, heck yeah. I'd be late too. I'd be late that day. But like, guys, you're going to, you're going to excuse this. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> like, I got some to watch and then I'll be out. All right. <laughs> well, thank you for listening, everybody. And be safe out there and watch out for the crazies. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.